I'm reading this morning in Hosea chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord, because my people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, Our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Throw out your calf idol, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? They are from Israel. This calf, a craftsman has made it. It is not God. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head. It will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like a worthless thing. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Thanks, Terry. Good morning. Here at Cole, we love to talk about grace. Grace is the amazing, amazing, unmerited favor of God that he would choose to make a way for us to be in relationship with him, that he would take our sins on himself so that we could have his love and his favor and be in relationship with him. God, by grace, has poured our iniquity on Jesus like we just talked about. Because of grace, I am his forever. We can be secure in his love. I love the passage in Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to read a few verses there because it's such a marvelous picture of God's grace poured out on us that we've been singing about all morning. Ephesians 2 verse 4 and following. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. What a wonderful description of grace, of how he's taken us in our deadness and raised us up, given us life, given us forgiveness. And it's all a gift. Even our faith is a gift from him. 
so that now we can walk in relationship with him and experience his grace every day, his love and care and his power available to us, his life in us. Praise God for his grace. So the Christian life should be one of celebrating his grace every day and living in God's grace all the time. So that whenever we sin, and we all sin, right? (laughs) Whenever we sin, we can immediately come into his presence and receive the fullness of his forgiveness. His grace is there to cover our sin and give us favor with God. So we celebrate grace around here all the time. It is awesome. But I think today we need to ask ourselves a question. Is it possible to abuse grace? Is it possible to misuse grace? And if so, how does God respond? He's a gracious God, we know that, but how does he respond when we misuse grace? For example, I've had some very close friends say to me, I know this is wrong. I shouldn't do it. But God's a gracious God and he will forgive me. Uh, In fact... I've said that. I've done that. And I imagine every one of us in this room has done that at some point where we've said, yeah, you know, but I really want to do this and God's going to forgive me anyway, so I'm going to do it. When we do that, are we abusing grace? I think we are. I think we are. In this passage today, in Hosea chapter 8, the Israelites have been abusing grace. They've experienced God's amazing grace in forming them into a people. They are his covenant people. He loves them dearly. He saved them out of Egypt. He redeemed them and gave them the promised land and blessed them with crops and life and nothing they worked for and it was all a gift for them. But they've been abusing that grace. And so God lays out a principle for them that also is a principle that carries over to us as new covenant believers. It's repeated in the New Testament several times in several ways. It's a principle that's important for us as believers to keep in mind when we're tempted to sin. And that principle is this. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. In this passage, it's given in verse 7. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind or the storm. (laughs) They sow the wind, but they reap the storm. You see, God is gracious, but he is also holy. And if we mock him by trying to say, no, I I want grace, but I also want to hang on to my sin, there will be consequences. There is a reaping that happens in our lives. And it's important we understand how that principle works and how grace can cleanse us from sin, but it also cleanses us so that we no longer even want to hang on to sin. Pray with me. Lord, we are just like Israel. As Susie said earlier, we are often choosing our own way over you. And Lord, as we look at this passage, we can identify in so many ways with Israel and the choices they're making. May your spirit convict us so that we might be 
set free to walk more fully in the amazing grace you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does Hosea lay out this principle? You reap what you sow, only more. Well, I want to look first at the first four verses where I I, I see four seeds that Israel is sowing that Hosea is pointing out. Four, Four things, four seeds that they're sowing to the wind. The first seed I see is unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. It begins this way. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord because the people have broken my covenant. What covenant is he talking about? Well, the covenant God made with them when he formed them as a people and called them out of Egypt. He gave them the law on Mount Sinai and he said, you are my people and let's have a covenant together. I will bless you. I will love you. I will care for you. I will be a father to you. I will provide for you. But I ask you to respond to that covenant by loving me in return. Because that's where life is for all of us, is to be in a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. So he set up the covenant with them, with Israel, and said, this is what I'm calling you to. You have a part in this. But the seed they were sowing in their lives was breaking the covenant. They were not faithful to God. Remember the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment says what? You shall have no other gods before me, besides me, in addition to me. And yet they had many gods. <laughs> they were worshipping lots of other things, other gods, Baal, Moloch, Asherah, etc. Because they were thinking, well, yeah, we'll worship you, Yahweh, we'll worship you, God, but just to guarantee that we have really good crops and life goes well, you know, to make sure we're secure, well, we'll worship these other things too. And they were breaking the exclusive covenant that God had called them into. This relationship He had asked them to be in with Him. So God had saved them, but they were sowing this seed of unfaithfulness, breaking the covenant. They owed Him their very life. And they were choosing to say, yeah, but no, we're going to worship other things. Well, what about us? Well, I think we sow to unfaithfulness like they do when we ignore God or when we worship other things, when we put other things before Him, when we choose to rely on other things besides Him, not make our covenant relationship with Him first. And number one, instead we we worship other things. We worship money or sex or power or pleasure or people's opinions of us or our own health. Or you can fill in the blank from your own heart what what God's convicted you of. We, We all are idolaters because that's part of the fallenness of our humanity. So the question we can ask ourselves to help us understand maybe what we worship is, what really has our hearts? What really takes our time, our energy, our focus, our effort? Is it God or something else? Is it financial security? Whatever it might be, if, we're, if it's something else other than Him, 
having the devotion of our heart, then we are sowing to unfaithfulness. We're scattering the seed of unfaithfulness. And also when we're unfaithful in relationships with people, unfaithful in our marriage or friendships or in the community of faith, and we choose to be selfish and go our own way, we're breaking covenant with others and we are sowing seeds of unfaithfulness like Israel did. The second seed that he describes for them is the seed of disobedience. Israel, it says in verse 1 again, has rebelled against my law, against my Torah. See, Israel had gotten this incredible gift, God's heart and God's mind, written for them, given to them in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament and the rest in addition. They knew what was right. But they chose to ignore the Torah. (laughs) They were cheating one another. They were making excuses. The leaders were building wealth and oppressing the poor. The people were violating all the commandments in various ways. You see, they were choosing the seed of disobedience. Yeah, I know what's right, but I really want this, so I am going to choose this. And don't we do the same? (laughs) There's times in our hearts where we just want something so bad, we just think we need it, that we know what God says, and yet we choose it anyway. I know premarital sex is wrong, but everybody's doing it. I know I should love my family right now but and die to myself, but I'm tired. I've been working hard, and I have the right to be selfish for a while. I know this is wrong, but I think God wants me to be happy. So he'll forgive me for having this affair. I think God made me with these desires and he hasn't taken them away. So he must want me to indulge in them. I know I shouldn't look at porn or flirt with somebody of the opposite sex when I'm married or fill in the blank. But I'm going to do it anyway. It feels good. It's harmless. We make excuses. We rationalize. God will forgive me anyway. (laughs) And so we sow to disobedience. The third seed that he says they're sowing to is the seed of hypocrisy. Verses 2 and 3. He says, Israel cries out to me, Oh, our God, we know you. My translation says we acknowledge you, but it's more literally, we know you. But Israel has rejected what is good. What are they saying? What's Israel saying here? Oh, we know you. You see, that's covenant terminology. They're saying, hey, I'm saved. I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm a Jew. I'm one of Israel. I'm, I, I'm one of the chosen, blessed people. And so, God, because I know you, then... I can live any way I want, right? Because you're obligated to forgive me. You see, for hundreds of years, God had poured out his grace on Israel. And their attitude was, I can do whatever I want because I'm one of God's chosen people. We have the same attitude, I think, and we sow to hypocrisy when we think, God, I prayed a prayer, so I know I'm saved. So 
I'm yours forever, and so it really doesn't matter how I live. I can kind of be selfish and do what I want. You see, that's sowing to hypocrisy because God's grace is meant to set us free from sin, not free us to sin. (laughs) And we're abusing grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this cheap grace. Cheap grace. It's not a true understanding of grace. It's forgetting that God saves us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. He wants us to be free to not have to live by sin because sin destroys, it's destructive, it's harmful for us. But when we continue to say, hey, I'm saved so it doesn't matter how I live, and we choose to be selfish, we're sowing seeds of hypocrisy. And the final seed that I see in this passage that he's highlighting is the seed of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Verse 4, where he says, They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Israel was literally setting up kings on their own, kings that God hadn't chosen. In fact, while Hosea is prophesying during those years, around 730 to 710, somewhere in there, B.C., while Hosea is prophesying, The northern kingdom of Israel had six different kings. Four of them were overthrown by assassination. The others were kicked out, died, whatever. And you see what was happening was they were setting up their own kings, doing their own thing, making their own gods, it says, as it goes on. They were, in other words, acting independently of God, We are going to figure out how life should work and we are going to be self-sufficient. We are going to act on our own apart from God. They're forgetting that God had saved them so he could be their Lord. A New Testament description of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where it says, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with the price. Therefore, honor God, glorify God in your body. Paul is saying, look, you were saved by such an incredible price, the very life of Christ who died for you. And therefore, you're not your own. We're saved so that we might relate to him and depend on him and depend on his life and walk in his strength. But Israel's saying, now nah, I'm going I'm to run my own life. Yeah, I'm saved. I'm one of the chosen people, but I'm going to run life my own way. And when we sow seeds of self-sufficiency where we're running our own lives and ignore Him, making our own decisions, living in our own power, we are like Israel, sowing the seed of self-sufficiency. So these seeds are things that are in our lives, and if we allow them to live, we plant them and let them begin to grow in our lives, what will grow up? What will they produce? These seeds of unfaithfulness, disobedience, hypocrisy, self-sufficiency. Well, he says, we will reap the storm. (laughs) You sow the wind, but you reap the storm. Now, there's a part of us, and and I've thought this, I've struggled with this, that, well, yeah, but if I choose to sin, as long as I repent hard enough, if I just repent well enough, then 
God will forgive me and I won't have to experience any consequences. But I often think of the example of King David. King David, who was a man after God's own heart, who wrote most of the Psalms, who had such a love for God and trusted him in so many ways, but he had that time where he was lazy instead of being out to war and he began to lust for Bathsheba and he brought her in and committed adultery with her and then got her pregnant and she, because she was pregnant, he tried to cover it up and so he had her husband killed, Uriah the Hittite. And David tried to ignore it, but Nathan the prophet came to him and confronted him and told the story about the the little lamb that was taken and David was outraged that someone would do that and Nathan says, you are the man. And then David repented. And we have this beautiful psalm, Psalm 51, of incredible repentance. And if there's any model for repentance in the scripture, it's that one. Of really repenting and giving his heart and crying out, yeah, I'm a sinner, I've been a sinner since birth. Lord, you are so right. I'm desperate for your mercy and forgiveness. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Search me and see if there's any hurtful way in me. I mean, he is on his knees and no one could repent any better than that. So if you think if someone could get away without consequences, David would. But David had the same principle at work in his life. You reap what you sow. And because David had sown so much to the flesh, the result was he reaped the storm. Remember what he reaped. That child that was conceived with Bathsheba died as an infant. But God said, violence will continue to follow your family. And for the rest of his life, David watched that lived out. He watched one of his sons rape a half-sister. Then another one of his sons murders that son. And that same son, the murderer, tries to kill David and take over the kingdom, Absalom. David experienced great pain because he reaped what he had sowed. Was God's grace with him? Did God forgive him? Did he experience walking with God in marvelous, intimate ways for the rest of his life? Yes, yes, God's grace was there. But there were still consequences. And that should be a warning to all of us that we do reap what we sow. Well, what do we reap? What are some things that he highlights in this passage? I just want to highlight quickly four things that I see Hosea pointing out to Israel that they reap from choosing to sow these things before God. The first is isolation. Verse 5. Throw out your calf idol, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will you be incapable of purity? It says that God is angry. There's, there's a break in the relationship. Nothing separates us ultimately from God's love, but the closeness we feel with God. When we choose to sow to these things, we experience some isolation from God and from God's people. Living unfaithfully, breaking the covenant, means there's brokenness. I've watched so many friends who have said, yeah, I just want to choose sin for a little while. I just want to try it out. And what happens, they end up isolated from their families, isolated from the church family that they've been close to and have been supportive of them. And 
they're isolated. They experience rejection. Like one friend who gave herself to an adulterous affair, chose to leave her husband, marry the one that she'd had the affair with, ran off with him, got married, and guess what happened? He had an affair with somebody else. <laughs> she reaped what she sowed. They, you can't avoid it. And part of what you experience is separation, isolation in relationships. That's just a natural consequence. That's the storm you reap when you sow these seeds. Secondly is frustration in life. It's highlighted in verse 7. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head. It will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Goes on to talk about verse 9. For they have gone to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. You see, the principle is God is holy. He won't be mocked. So if we sow to sin, we will reap frustration in life. I want to highlight the New Testament passage that's most clear, although it's given in several places, but in Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes this very principle, verse 7. Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. And so when God lays out this principle, he says, you will reap the storm, you will reap destruction. And we will too if we continue to choose it. What is the storm? It's no heads on the grain, no, no real fruitfulness in your life. It's frustration in your work. You'll work and not produce things and it won't be satisfying. When you try to have fun, it won't really satisfy your heart in all of life. You just experience frustration. I've watched friends with their lives just fall apart more and more and they get more frustrated. They think, this is really life. If I choose this, it'll feel so good. And they choose sin and they end up reaping the storm of frustration in their lives. And he pictures it like a wild donkey. I mean, what a picture. Think about this. A wild donkey wandering alone not able to have any friends, having to sell themselves to find friendship at all, a picture of prostitution. It's a picture of, for example, pornography, when, when we give in to something like pornography and we think, oh, this won't hurt anybody, it's, you know, no one will know, it's a victimless crime, whatever, it won't hurt anybody, and, and they give in to it, but because of the shame and guilt, when you give into it, you know what happens. You get more and more isolated like a lonely donkey wandering alone, hungry for relationship but lost. It's true of all sin, really. When we sow to it, you, you experience frustration in life. The third storm we reap is unsatisfying religion. Verse 11 through 13, let me read those verses. Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. 
I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something alien. They offer sacrifices to me and they eat the meat, but the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They'll return to Egypt. He says Israel is still doing sacrifices. You know, they have high places and, and they're sacrificing, but not, you know, maybe to Yahweh, but maybe to Baal, maybe to Moloch, maybe to Asherah, etc. They're still being religious, but it's saying all that it's producing is death. There's no real life in it. That's not satisfying. Do you sometimes go through times, maybe over the long haul, of where, you know, you, you pray, but it just feels like it's not going anywhere. The ceiling is copper and the prayers don't get through and it seems like God's not there and he's not listening and, you know, life is tough and you read the word and it, you just don't get anything out of it. Now, sometimes God puts us through those times so that we'll continue to just walk by faith and trust him. So you can't guarantee that every time that happens, it's because you're reaping what you've sown. But this passage suggests there are times when that happens that you are just simply reaping what you've sown. That the reason the word doesn't mean anything to you and that God seems so distant is because maybe you're harboring something that God wants you to repent of and that your faith has become very unsatisfying to you because your repentance is empty. It's not real. So descriptive, I think, in that verse where it says that the word, he says, I wrote for them many things of my law, but they regarded them as something alien, where the word just doesn't make sense anymore. It it, it doesn't penetrate my heart. It doesn't mean much to me. Well, that may be a good indication to search our hearts and say, Lord, is there something I'm harboring that I'm reaping the storm? The final storm that he describes that Israel was reaping is the storm of insecurity in life. Verse 14, Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has fortified many towns, but I will send fire upon their cities and will consume their fortresses, because they've forgotten the one who formed them and shaped them and they're going their own way. It says they built palaces, they built fortified cities, but God says, I'm going to knock it all down. It won't provide security for them. You see, so it is in our lives because if we reap if we're reaping the storm because we've sown to these things, we'll have an insecurity in life and no matter how much we have or what we try to build to protect ourselves to feel secure in life, we'll always feel insecure in life because Christ can be our only security that really lasts. John D. Rockefeller started Standard Oil Company. He was at one point the richest man in the world and first American billionaire. Considering he was a billionaire in the early 1900s, he was probably, perhaps, he's considered the richest person in modern history. When a reporter asked him, how much money is enough? You probably have heard his quote. He responded, a little more. (laughs) A little more. You see, it doesn't matter what you have. It's not satisfying if you're sowing the wind. 
because it will just get blown away by the storm that comes. Well, this is a sobering passage, isn't it? Is God gracious? Yes. Oh, God is overwhelmingly gracious. His arms are open wide. He longs for us to come to Him. But how we live does matter. And it's important we remember that. We will reap what we sow. If we're willing to let go of our sin and turn to Him, He will give us life, forgiveness, His presence, His power. He'll wash us clean. It's marvelous. But when we come to Him holding on to sin and trying to grab grace too, then we begin to reap what we sow because God in His love will not let us hold on to sin because He knows how destructive it is in our lives. When we choose to hold on to unfaithfulness and disobedience and hypocrisy and self-sufficiency, God will work to break us of it by causing us to reap what we sow because He's holy, He's pure. In the New Testament, Paul says in that wonderful passage that he's wrestling with this very question in Romans chapter 6, remember, where he says, well, grace is so great, shall we continue in sin? So grace might increase, so we continue in sin because grace is going to cover it anyway? And his answer is this, the wages of sin is death. That's saying you reap what you sow, right? Sin always pays its wages, and if you continue to hang on to sin and walk in sin, you're going to experience the storm that results. But there is good news. And the good news is this. If we will sow to the Spirit, we will reap an abundance of life. And again, back to that passage in Galatians chapter 6. Let me start again. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, the flesh, from that nature will reap destruction. But he goes on to say this. And here's the good news. But the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. What does it mean to sow to the Spirit? Well, it means to come to Him and say, I I want to depend on You, Holy Spirit. Live through me. Love other people through me. Love the Father through me. I want to walk in Your power and Your strength and Your forgiveness every day. It's living in that living relationship with the Spirit, and as he says in that passage, committing yourself to grow in loving others. Let us not grow weary in doing good because we will reap what we've sown. I want to close with that wonderful poem by St. Francis of Assisi that talks about sowing. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, harmony. Where there is error, truth. Where there is doubt, 
faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. We have the opportunity to sow truth, faith, hope, light, joy, understanding, love. And as we sow those in our relationships and we sow faithfulness to God in our lives, we experience the fullness of his joy. So the question for all of us today is, what, what am I sowing? What are you sowing? To the flesh or to the spirit? Because as this principle says, we will reap what we sow. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, your grace is so good. Your love is overwhelming. Thank you that when we bring our sin to you to take it from us, your love and grace wash us clean and take care of it and you fill us with your spirit. So Lord, the areas in our hearts and our lives where we're harboring sin, where we're sowing to the flesh, may you point those out and may we repent that we might sow to life, sow to the Spirit, sow love and peace and joy that you might use us to touch this dark world with your life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.